If we don't take that seriously, we may become like that church in England. An old legendary church you've heard about. They met in this building. They had a nice sign and it said, We preach Christ crucified. They began to be very comfortable in who they were and the ivy began to grow under the sign. And before long, the ivy covered up the last word. So the motto now read, We preach Christ. Good enough, I guess. But they became even more smug and the ivy continued to grow unnoticeably until the sign read, We preach. Before long, unfortunately, the ivy covered everything but the word we, and not long after that, the church died. And while that story may have a little urban legend myth to it, it symbolically represents what can happen if we don't take our responsibility seriously. Amen? 1 Timothy chapter 4. And in this chapter, he brings a stern warning to us about things that could happen. The ivy, so to speak, of false doctrine that could grow up around us unnoticeably, uh, uh, slowly but surely, and overtake us to where suddenly we don't even know what happened and we find ourselves wondering and, and dead and straying. Could it happen to us, people ask? Could it happen to people at Ephesus? Paul sounds a clear warning in this chapter. He begins in chapter 4, verse 1. Follow along with me as we understand this chapter and, and our responsibility better. He says in verse 1, the Spirit clearly says, and by the way, that alone tells me God speaks, doesn't He? Through His Spirit. Read 1 Corinthians 2. The Spirit says, He, the Spirit, that personage of the Trinity that is God, but indwelling those who believe, the Spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith. Underline that phrase. That's the, 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 the clearest uh, description of what these first five verses talk about. He's going to expand on it more, but in essence, people abandoned or left or deserted the faith. And they followed deceiving spirits. Notice that. You see, there's who's waging war against the Holy Spirit. There, is, there are deceiving spirits, and then there is the Holy Spirit. Which is why John wrote to us, he said that we should test the spirits, right? And any spirit that says Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. Those who deny the visible, physical, evidential reality of a man named Jesus are not of God. They're false spirits. And these kinds of people were in Ephesus. These kinds of spirits were in Ephesus and they were leading people astray. They were deceiving spirits and, and the people were abandoning the faith, believing things taught by demons. If you've ever wondered if there is spiritual warfare, just read 1 Timothy 4.1. Demons teach things they work through deceiving spirits and they also work through, look at verse 2, such teachings come through what? Hypocritical liars. I like the way Paul kind of politically and nicely talks about the enemy, don't you? He says these deceiving spirits and these demonic forces, man, they, they work through hypocritical liars, the false teachers. In Philippians 3, I think he calls them dogs. And these people, their consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. Interesting uh, illustration here. What did he already twice in this book ask Timothy to develop? He asked Timothy to develop a good conscience. Remember that? 
a sensitive conscience, one that's apparently not seared or hardened or callous. I mean, can you picture in your mind something that with a hot iron, it's just... It becomes hardened and very, almost like something you could slap and touch, but you'd never feel it. False teachers who are led by demons and false spirits have consciences that you just can't get to. They're hardened, they're calloused. And sometimes you say, well, I don't know why they can't see the truth. They have, they have hot, ironed consciences, that's why. They said no over and over and over and they seared their conscience. Read Romans 1. It talks about what happens when you say no to God over and over. These guys have. Here's what these guys have been teaching. They forbid people to marry. And they order them to abstain from certain foods. And this was just part of their doctrine. Their false doctrine. Now, interesting. I'm going to stop there for a minute and say this. interesting that sometimes Christians become known as the legalists, don't they? The, the, the religion of prohibition is kind of what Christianity has become known as. You talk to the average guy, you can't do this, you can't do that. Paul says here, good night. It's the false uh, spirits, it's the false teachers, it's the demons that are putting out these you can't do this and can't do that theories. He says, Paul says in verse uh, 3 and 4, he says, listen, we know that God created things to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Isn't that interesting? And let me say something to you here. This verse implies uh, very emphatically that there is an inner work going on when God's involved. You see what he says? We receive whatever food was being told you can't eat. He says, listen, if you receive it with thanksgiving, there's nothing wrong with it. That's an inner attitude, isn't it? It's a heart attitude that says, Lord, thank you. And that shows me something that true uh, relationship with Christ is an inward thing first and then it expresses itself. But false religion always starts on the outside. You can't do that and you better not do that. And don't touch this and don't handle that. Are you with me? Man, the biblical view of a relationship with Christ is always one that starts here and works its way out. And Paul lays his eyes and says, listen, man, a thankful heart is what God's after and then receive your food with thanksgiving. There's not that many rules you have to worry about when it comes to food. Amen? He says, God created them to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything God created is good. Don't you sense the, the joy in that verse as opposed to those legalists, those false, hypocritical liars who say, you better, better approach life because you, there's, there's something wrong with everything. You might step out of bounds over here and you might be just suddenly struck dead. And you can sense that kind of attitude with Paul's. Man, God created everything good. Don't you see the joy of salvation? As opposed to the fear of legalism? And it's just coming out of these verses. He says nothing to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. There it is again. Because it is consecrated by the Word of God in prayer. Just a little rabbit trail here. Those of you who pray before you eat, that's a good and biblical practice. But to be most biblical, you might consider maybe adding the Word of God in there. It says here that Thanksgiving sometimes is best represented by the Word of God in prayer. Perhaps a verse in their prayer might be even more biblical. I think the truth is, though, even beyond that, the heart is what God's after. Amen? The heart of Thanksgiving is what God's after. So here, here it is. In these first five verses, Paul's warning us. He's saying, listen, people are abandoning the faith. Maybe just jot this down in your sermon notes section somewhere on your worship folder. Just jot this down that the first five verses kind of show us that some were letting go. They were abandoning. They were 
were saying, hey, I'm no longer part of that. And it was happening through demons and spirits who were working through false hypocritical liars, teaching things that weren't right and weren't true. And folks were letting go of their sound doctrine. What was the response that Paul encouraged Timothy to have? Well, he lays this out for us in the next several verses of this chapter. I think he brings two major emphases out. I want to lay them out for you here briefly. Verses 6 through about 11 show us that the first thing Paul said do is to point these things out to the brothers. Or, let me put it to you in the vernacular that we understand. He says, Paul, I want you to lay it out. Now look at your Bibles, verse 6. Do you see the phrase, if you point these things out? Do you see that? It's different than the word command, which he has used several times in this epistle. If you recall, several times he's told Timothy, you command these false teachers. You have them stop that. But here to the brothers, he says, Timothy, I want you to point these things out. Listen very carefully. I'm going to kind of unpack this phrase for you. It is not less emphatic. It's still an intensive uh, present active verb, which means Timothy is to continuously be pointing things out. But it speaks to the manner in which he's to do it. To false teachers, he is to be a commanding general. He's to leave no room for negotiation. But to the brothers, he's to have a, a, a humble, shepherdly approach. Now, this doesn't mean that things are up for negotiation, but it just shows a, a, a clear, orderly... I want to use the word... Uh, and in both places, we're humble. We're humble when we command. We're humble when we lay it out. But there's a distinct difference in how this is presented. And I think it goes to whom the audience is. When you're with the brothers, there's an automatic camaraderie. You're with me? When the family of God is gathered, it's, it's like, hey, we are, we are bound by the Spirit. We believe. And so let's, let's remind you of these things. Let's point them out so that we don't stray from them. And he says, Timothy, that's one of your primary jobs now, your responsibilities, to point these things out to the brothers. And in doing so, you'll be a good minister of Christ Jesus. See that in verse 6? The word good there is intrinsically good. It means whole from the inside out. You'll be brought up in the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. In other words, Timothy... The things that you've been brought up with and the things that you have ascribed to and been taught, you need to point these out to the brothers. And there he thinks he speaks of those in the church, those fellow comrades that, were, that belong to this believing family, this church. Point them out. That's why I say to you, one of the first ways to stop the abandonment of the faith is to point out sound doctrine, clear truth. I hope that at First Family, one of the things that we will be known for in a humble way is the, is the desire of our heart to just point out to all of us each Sunday and in our lighthouses throughout the week is to point out the truth and then to embrace it and stay with it and not abandon it. Amen? Just to clearly and in a very orderly, manly way to say, Hey church, this is what we believe. And he says, Timothy, you've got to do that. Now, that's in contrast. Look what he says in verse 7. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Do you see the difference? One's just a bunch of talk that leads nowhere. Amen? But one is the kind of talk that leads somewhere. And where does it lead? It leads to the kind of, the kind of help that lasts, uh, that has eternal benefits. Look what he says. After discussing the contrast between real truth and then godless myths, he says in verse 8, physical training is of, is of some value. Or the words there, little value. But godliness has value for all things. 
holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. Now watch this. Let me kind of explain these verses and their connection. We sometimes take the physical training verse and we just kind of use it in a broad way. But he was telling Timothy to train himself. Watch this. To train himself spiritually to avoid all the godless myths and to not be involved with all the chatter of old wives' tales and instead train yourself to point the truth out to the brothers. In doing that, you'll really experience the benefits of real godliness. Are you with me? It takes training and discipline. The word training there is the word gymnastia, which we get the word gym from. It means strive and you work, you exercise. He said, Timothy, it takes work to avoid meaningless talk. And if you've ever been in ministry, if you've ever led anything, right now your heart is nodding in full agreement, I know. It takes work to say, you know what, I won't be sidetracked with these, with these little issues. But instead I'm going to, watch this, I'm going to discipline myself to focus on what I know really brings health and nourishment to people. And trust me, there are a thousand cultural issues the devil would love to sidetrack most ministers with. Get them off the truth. But you know what? It's the truth. It's the sound doctrine that's related in Jesus Christ that really brings the kind of nourishment and help that leads to the good kind of wholesome life that starts inwardly and works outwardly. He says, Timothy, you've got to train yourself to live and minister that way because that kind of training leads to godliness, and godliness holds promise for the present life and the life to come. I would say to you this, and this applies to me as well as to you, if all of us would spend as much time on our spiritual man as we do our physical man, we'd be so godly we wouldn't know what to do with ourselves. We spend time taking care of ourselves physically, and I don't think that's wrong. But in comparison, sometimes we don't spend near that kind of time taking care of ourselves spiritually, do we? And no wonder we find ourselves leaning towards more things like godless myth. We're attracted to, to the kind of chatter and meaningless talk that leads nowhere. We've got to discipline ourselves, and it starts with the leaders. We've got to discipline ourselves to really to focus on truth that leads to godliness. Godliness affects us now and in the future. Amen? And the core truth of what we've got to point out is listed in the next few verses. He says, Timothy, avoid the chatter. Focus on the good truths. Here's the core of that truth. This is a trustworthy saying, verse 9 says, that deserves full acceptance. And for this we labor and strive. Don't miss those words. And it's work. It is work to keep the truth clear and simple. Amen? It is, it, it's something for which we work and labor and strive. Here's what it is. That we have put our hope in the living God. Not a dead, pagan, wood idol or some statue in the temple of Diana there in Ephesus. Are you with me? But Paul says we have put our hope in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. Who's he talking about there? Jesus Christ. And again, I bring you back to last week's themes as well. The the real central truth that we have to get right is the truth about Jesus. Amen? Now listen very carefully. This is the last part of verse 10 here. Some have construed this to mean that uh, what is called universalism. It says that God is the Savior of all men. So as I've had some people say to me, See, Todd, everybody is saved. Well, that's not what this verse is teaching. Furthermore, the Bible clearly says that those who reject truth will condemn themselves to hell. They're already under condemnation, John 3 says. So we know the Bible won't contradict itself. So what does this mean? Well, I think there's a couple of different explanations. Let me share them with you briefly. The one that I hold to and believe is that God is the Savior of all men in the sense that 
every breath anyone takes is a, in the sense of, a, of, of saving. In other words, that's just a, a physical kind of saving that you wouldn't get. I mean, God created everyone. So the fact that you're breathing an extra day or two, that's a gift. Consider yourself, quote-unquote, saved in that sense. Are you with me? And then he says, but especially those who believe, in that sense, you are saved eternally. I think he's probably referencing here the, the saving work that God exemplifies to all people in general. Remember the rain falls on the just and the unjust? There's a benefit to God's work that everybody experiences to some degree. But there's only an eternal benefit to those who believe. Are you with me? Other, another view is that perhaps he's speaking here of the word potential and actual. In other words, God is potentially the Savior of all who believe, but He's actually uh, the Savior. Excuse me, He's potentially the Savior of all people. In other words, everyone could be saved, but only those who believe are actually saved. The reason I, and I think that's probably legitimate in some ways. I think the word especially, at least from my from a reference, seems to put more emphasis on the fact that the first use seems to be more of, of an accurate because it seems to say everyone to some degree is enjoying God's saving work. But especially those who believe. And I think that at that point it becomes a, a sense of saying, okay, the eternal saving work of God is something enjoyed only by those who believe. You may disagree, that's fine. The point is this. Jesus Christ is the center of this verse, amen. And that's the center of the core truths that we teach. Jesus Christ. And that's what we labor and strive for. And then verse 11, look at it. Command and teach these things. Some of your translations may have verse 11 beginning a new paragraph. I tend to think it's the closing thought to what he just said. He's talking about a lot of verbal exercises, isn't he? He's talking a lot about what we say and how to lay things out. So Timothy, command and teach these things. Strive and labor for these things. Lay it out clear, simply, orderly, and humbly. One more way he mentions here in these last few verses, and I'll do this rather quickly here. Verses 12 through about 16, he begins to move to a more an emphasis that talks about the visible. He says, Timothy, I want you to live it out as well. Look at verse 12. Don't let anyone look down on you because you're young, but set an example. Do you see that? The word is pattern or prototype or model. He says, Timothy, I want you to live out what you've been laying out. So that the believers can see that, that what you say is true in your own life. Live this out in life, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. Notice how that's a very visible act, isn't it? To the preaching and to the teaching. By the way, the, you ought to underline the words reading, preaching, and teaching. Those are three aspects of the gathering of the early believers. We don't have a lot of information about perhaps what a service looked like in the early church. But these three components seem to be three things. There was this Old Testament reading of Scripture. By the way, the word Scripture there is used 51 times in the New Testament. It always refers to the Old Testament. So probably as they gathered, there was a reading of the Old Testament, either the prophets or the Psalms or the law. Then there was a preaching or an exhortation is a better use of the word there. There was a time in which they gathered and they kind of exhorted people to action. And then there was the teaching, which was the doctrine of the church. So in the gathering, at least there were three components. There was an Old Testament reading and understanding. There was this exhortation or application type of environment. And then doctrinal teaching. He says, don't neglect your gift in verse 14, which was given you through a prophetic message when the body of elders laid their hands on you. He says, Timothy, you've got to live out this message that will help people stop abandoning the faith. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may what? 
See your progress. Do you see the real visible tone of these last few verses? He says, Timothy, you've got to say them, yes, but you've got to live them so people can see what's happening. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them. Because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. I love the last phrase of this verse because it speaks back to verses 1-5. through What were the hearers possibly doing? They were abandoning the faith. But he said, Timothy, if you will, watch this word, lift it out, and then you will live it out, those who hear you and yourself, you'll be a part of that saving process. Not necessarily God's saving work in the sense that we redeem people, but in other words, you'll save people from abandoning the faith. You're a part of the rescue effort to keep them from, from turning the other way. And the very last verse speaks clearly about the first five verses. And, and all the verses between say, Timothy, you've got to point them out, and then you've got to live it out. And when we do that, church... When the leaders of first family and then the people who are part of that body of believers lip it out and then we live it out, those who watch and may be under uh, considering these demonic false teachings or listening to false spirits, they say, no, wait, that's not true. Here's the truth. I see it expressed verbally and I see it expressed visually and they'll believe. We have a responsibility to embrace the truth, to clearly be able to express it, and then to visually live it out. In fact, I want you to write a verse down for later. You can look at it with your life house, or maybe look at it over lunch with your family. Write down the reference, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. These verses are awesome ways to apply what Paul does in 1 Timothy 4. In fact, I would just say two simple words to help you apply this even more. You don't need a lot of application because expressing something and living it out is pretty clear, isn't it? We've got to say it and we've got to live it. But these two verses in 1 Corinthians 2 Corinthians 4, they show us that honesty and clarity are key words in fulfilling our responsibility. He says in these verses that we're, we're to renounce shameful and hidden things and we're to speak clearly the truth about Jesus. A good example of that is Jody Halstead. I'm going to mention this and we're going to pray. A few weeks ago, Jody sat right back over there about where Mark and Christine are. And we were talking about Paul's testimony in 1 Timothy chapter 1. In God's Spirit, she wrote this in her blog. She writes, As I was listening, I felt the Spirit nudge my heart. It's time to share my testimony. She writes, I quote, I've been asked for it many times, but I am really quite embarrassed and ashamed of who I was and what I had done. And for a very long time, I was afraid of being judged for my past. But I've gotten over that now. I know that I have been forgiven by God and that Jesus was sacrificed for the sins that I committed. With that knowledge, I'm ready to share my story. And she writes about a page and a half of how her life up to meeting Christ. She writes all about it. You have to go to the blog and read it. I'm not going to read it to you. It's amazing. It's, it's like First Timothy chapter 1. It's, uh, man, God can save anybody. She writes that in here. She says she recalls the day she got saved and accepted the Lord's message. She it was the day that I didn't want to go to church at all. They were just checking out churches. They were frustrated. Uh, Doug was working way overtime. She was tired. The little kids were crazy. She goes, the last place I wanted to be was with a church. But that's where I found myself. And that day when I was asked to accept the gospel, I raised my hand and cried as I'm crying now. She says, not long after that I was baptized. 
And then she makes a statement. This is great clarity verbally, and God is changing Jody Halstead. Just watch her life. You'll see a person who's just a changed individual, like a lot of us. She writes, Now I trust in God. I believe in His salvation through the blood of Jesus Christ. Now see, if you knew who her audience was, you'd think, you'd think what I'm thinking, because most of her readers are unsaved people. They don't know about the blood of Christ. That probably sounds really un- incorrect politically. You can't talk about blood. What do you mean people are dying? That's not... But she just lays it out pretty clear, doesn't she? She goes, Jesus Christ was sacrificed for my sins. I am saved through the blood of Christ, and I know that I've been forgiven. She says from yesterday's sermon, if God can save Paul, He can save anyone. If God can save me, He can save anyone. And she shared her testimony. And you ought to read the multiple responses she got. People who were writing things that had no idea what she meant. She has got a platform to share her story like few I know. And I say something, I hope that we all will have that kind of clarity and courage as we seek to try to lay out for people what God has done in our life. Amen? See, I suspect there are people who read that and think, well, maybe I ought to think twice about what I've been believing. That's the whole idea. Way to go, Jody. Way to lay it out and live it out so those who are thinking of abandoning the faith will think twice and instead say, wait a second, there must be something to this man named Jesus. What will I do with him? And just perhaps God will use you in the process of saving those who hear His message. Amen.